0: Let me ask you a question, Joanna. Welcome back, dudes and dudettes. This is episode one twenty-two of the Anxious Truth. We're doing, <clears throat> excuse me, we're doing part two of listener Q and A that we started last week. Uh, last week was full of really great questions. I'm getting great feedback on that episode. I think this is something that I probably have to do more often. Uh, people seem to enjoy being able to ask questions and listening to me answer them directly. So we'll do it every couple of months for sure. I promise. Uh, today we're going to talk about. Uh, Mainly the questions centered around memory and thoughts as they relate to anxiety and anxiety recovery. We're going to talk about some parenting stuff. We're going to talk about depression and sleep anxiety. And some folks asked questions about my personal story. So I'll answer some of those. Before we get into it, uh, I'm going to direct you back to the anxioustruth.com recovery guide. That is my book, The Anxious Truth, a step-by-step guide to understanding and overcoming panic, anxiety, and agoraphobia. It is essentially everything you've ever heard me say on social media or in a blog post or in a podcast, just in great detail and organized in a logical sequence. It is essentially a 400-page course on how to recover from an anxiety disorder. So if you're looking for additional help, I'm pretty proud to say that I think that book can really represent that for you. So theanxioustruth.com slash recovery guide tells you everything you need to know about the book and where to get it. Uh, go check it out if you'd like to. And if you've already done it and, and you're reading it reading it or have read it and it is helpful, Uh, A review on Amazon is always helpful, just saying, asking a favor if I could. All right, let's get into it. So first question that I want to take today was a, a good question. Will things ever feel normal again? And the answer to that is absolutely things will feel normal again. I promise they will. As you go through this process, I know if you are struggling right now, you're still in the thick of it, you're still in the middle of the disorder, you're having a hard time every day, nothing feels normal, nothing does. And part of the reason why nothing feels normal is that you are constantly on guard. You're constantly, you know, Claire Weeks used the term sensitization. You're oversensitized. You're on a hair trigger. You're always looking for the next shoe to drop, right? You're always looking for the next wave of anxiety or panic or fear or health scare or intrusive thought or worry or whatever it happens to be. You're always looking for it. You're ready for it all the time. So you're on a high alert all the time, and that is not a normal way to live at all. So you're constantly scanning for threats, constantly, constantly scanning for threats, constantly on guard against them, and that's not normal. And it keeps you at this really kind of heightened state all the time. And it's exhausting, and it's, it's demoralizing, and it sucks. I know. I live that. Uh, but it won't be like that all the time. The reason why I can say with confidence that things will go back to normal or what you in your head you've, you've thought of as normal is that as you begin to lose the fear of how you feel and what you think, and we learn these new ways to relate to our anxiety, our anxiety disorder, the fear, the panic, the thoughts, new ways to relate to them so that you're not afraid of them anymore. When you're not afraid of a thing anymore, it is no longer a threat, so you don't have to scan for it constantly. And that will eliminate that constant state of high alert that you're living in all the time. So you, things will go back to normal. You will have normal times. You will have normal days. You will live a normal life again. Because human beings do not live their entire life all the time, constantly scanning for threats. And when we eliminate the threat, because we eliminate the fear, and when you eliminate the fear, it's no longer a threat, then you're not scanning anymore. That sensitization slowly starts to, to calm down. It tends to die off. And what you're going to find is that you will notice suddenly that, like, ooh, I think I just went through 10 or 15 minutes when I wasn't thinking about how I feel. I wasn't aware of how I feel. I wasn't engaged with my thoughts. I wasn't engaged with my obsessions. I wasn't engaged with my health worries. Like you'll start to see these little glimpses where you forget about your anxiety and your fear and the irrational fear. And you just sort of go back to autopilot for a little while. And when you start to feel those things, that's when you know. Like all of a sudden you'll notice, oh, I think I just had like 10 minutes where I wasn't in my own head. Then that'll be an hour. Then that'll be two hours. It'll happen. So, yes, things will go back to normal. They'll go back to normal a little bit at a time, but you will get there. And you'll start seeing little glimpses of normal, and then those will get bigger and longer and longer and longer, and then they'll come more frequently. And next thing you know, you'll be stringing together entire days of what you would really hope for to call normal or what you think is normal. So, yeah, normal is a thing. It's going to come back. I promise it will. I know it doesn't feel like it today because you're afraid of everything. But when you learn not to be afraid of everything – Normal will come back. I promise it will. So let's get into the next bunch of questions. I'll I'll run through them. I'm going to group them all together. These are really questions about dealing with intrusive, scary, disturbing thoughts. So thoughts and memory, they're all in the same, same category, right? So people ask this, how do I handle the memory of panic when it still scares me? Are flashbacks common in anxiety? One person asked, will catastrophic thoughts ever fully go away? Another person asked about uh, dealing with stuck thoughts about death. And another person just chimed in, existential anxiety with, with exclamation points. So really, these are just questions about relating to our thoughts and our memories. They're all the same question in the end. I know each of you asked a question that are, that is specific about a specific topic of thought or memory. But in the end, the answer is all the same because these these are questions about dealing with thoughts and memories. So thoughts and memories are things that all human beings have. That's normal. We all think all the time, and we have memories, right? We experience things in our head that happened in the past. We have visual images. We, we can remember in a lot of different sensory ways. We smell sounds, tastes, uh, images. So we have memories. We have thoughts. Our brains are working. We think all the time. These are normal functions. Just that for people who are not in the throes of an anxiety disorder, these are not problematic normal functions, So what you're really asking here, when you ask about flashbacks, so you're asking about being afraid of old panic attacks, so you still remember what a panic attack felt like, and it scares you when you remember that. In the end, this still always comes back to, am I afraid of how I feel and what I'm thinking? And the reason why, you know, normal, air quotes, normal people who are thinking all the time and are experiencing memories all the time, the reason why those people do not find this to be a problematic thing is that they are not afraid of those things. Uh, and let me clarify this. So let's talk about specifically the uh, memory of old panic or past panic attacks or flashbacks. Let's talk about those things. So those are more memory-based. But memories are thoughts in the end. So those could be unpleasant things. We all have unpleasant memories in our lives. Uh, times of sadness or heartbreak or loss or grief or embarrassment or failure. They live with us, right? These are things that, that get in our—they're encoded in our memory. That's just part of our life experience. That's okay. We carry them forward with us. That's okay. Most of the time when we remember those things, most of the time, if we're not dealing with an anxiety disorder, we remember those things and they might upset us or, you know, bother us a little bit or make us sad or angry. Um, when you experience a memory, especially if it's a vivid memory, you're going to react to that memory in a very similar way as you react to the, to the original event and thing. that created the memory. That's normal. That's the way our bodies work and our minds work. That's normal. The difference is, if I remember something that was, I don't know, particularly embarrassing from 25 years ago in my life, I might feel a twinge of embarrassment. I might feel a little bit uncomfortable, like I did back then, whatever the event was. i do you know, making something up here. So I might feel the same sort of emotion and reaction to my body. I might feel the same way. And it might be unpleasant. I don't, I don't necessarily want to experience that. I don't want to remember it necessarily, but I do. And this happens to people every single day. The difference is right now you are, you are nailing additional fear on top of that. So not only are you experiencing an unpleasant memory, but now you are also tacking on two things. You're tacking on being afraid of your reaction when you experience that memory. So when you have a memory... You're, you have a reaction to that memory. The memory brings about a thought, which brings about an emotion, which brings about a physical reaction, and now you are afraid of all the changes in your body and your mind, so whenever anything comes up that triggers a change in state, you are afraid of that. So you are have literally become afraid of the act of remembering because it, it elicits a normal human response, and you don't like that response because you don't like how you feel. So that that's an issue. You have to realize... Like I'm experiencing a memory of something that happened that was bad in my life, you know, whatever that happens to be. Or I'm experiencing the memory of of a past panic attack. I don't like that memory because it's not a pleasant thing that happened to me. But I do not have to be afraid of what happens to me when I remember, right? So you have to really understand what's going on there. A memory triggers thoughts, which triggers emotion, which triggers bodily responses. Now you have Bodily responses, thoughts, and emotions all in response to a normal function called memory. And you have, you have attached fear to that response. You don't like that response because you don't really want to feel your body and you don't want to feel emotions and you don't want to have thoughts. So as you get better at relating in a new way to your thoughts, your sensations, your emotions, and you stop being afraid of thinking, feeling, and, and experiencing bodily, then those memories become far less impactful. They're still memories and they still might be unpleasant but they don't have to trigger a tidal wave of of additional present fear because you won't be afraid of the response that those memories elicit anymore. And in a way, the fact that you become afraid of the response kind of has you locked in a time machine. So it makes you almost unable to differentiate between what's happening now, which is you're just thinking and remembering, and what actually happened a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago some catastrophic or traumatic event or a panic attack that was particularly disturbing to you, like you're unable to differentiate between what was happening then and what is happening now because you're afraid of the memory of that. You're afraid of the, the responses that your body and your mind come up with in response to remembering. But as you get better at relating to those things and you begin to lose the fear of your own body and mind and your own thoughts, your emotions, you know that you can handle these things, then the memory might surface and it might be unpleasant, but it would just be an unpleasant memory in the end. And and you will, not, you will not then drag the actual phobic response into the present by saying, well, now I must react in a defensive way to this memory, which you don't have to do. You'll unlearn that response just like anything else. So how do you handle the memory of panic or flashbacks when they still scare you? Well, you get better at, at squelching that reaction to the memory. So instead of going into, oh, my God, mode, oh, my God, oh, my God, bracing, fighting, fleeing, trying to distract – all the things that you might do in response to a current panic attack or a current wave of anxiety, you have to start squashing those, those responses and let those memories come. It's okay. You can experience them. You are capable of experiencing flashbacks, memories, images from the past. You are capable of experiencing those things. You can handle it. You don't have to add additional fear on top of them because you think you can't, and that will blur the line between what was then and what is now. So you'll get better at that over time. Again, this is a reaction thing. When you learn to change your reaction to those things, and I'm not saying you wipe out the memory. That's not true. You know, we're not trying to wipe out our thoughts, memories, and emotions here. We're just learning new ways to relate to them, new ways to react to them that are not irrationally fear-based, if you will. So that is the, the answer to the, the memory and flashback kind of thing. But it really goes, it, it, it stands, look, the, the, the same approach is true with things like will catastrophic thoughts ever fully go away? Or how do I deal with a stuck thought about death or you know, thoughts about existential issues, existential anxiety? Same situation in the end. Now, maybe those are, those are present thoughts. Those aren't memories or flashbacks from the past. Those are present thoughts. But again, people think all the time. Like, humans are thinking all the time. Our brains are just working all the time. That's normal. That's what they do. Just that we don't attach a, a danger response to when we think and feel, generally speaking. So, again, you have just conditioned yourself to say, uh-oh, a thought about you know existential issues. That disturbs me. Like, that's a – and they are. Those are difficult philosophical questions. They're difficult emotional questions. Sometimes we all wrestle with them. That's okay. That's normal. But you do not like – you are terrified of the feelings that you get when you think about specific things. And I'm going to tell you this. Like, the two questions here, you know, catastrophic thoughts, death, and existential dilemmas, those are heavy things, Right? but i I'm, I'm going to tell you that people who deal with anxiety disorders especially people who are dealing with ocd like real true ocd those same like horrible reactions terrifying things where they get stuck in the you know they just get dragged under by thoughts sometimes those thoughts do not sound at all catastrophic or heavy to anyone else but to them they are like the checking compulsions the checking obsessions the counting obsessions like, that doesn't seem catastrophic to you, probably, because you think, well, I'm special because I'm worried about death or my, my place in the universe. What is existence? What am I? Like, to you, it seems like, well, those are such heavy questions. How would I not be upset by that? How can I not be terrified of thinking of those things? But people in the, in the grips of anxiety disorders often get, get terrified and dragged under by absolutely random things like counting, checking, washing rituals, cleaning rituals. They're all based on, on safety and, and avoidance and things of that nature. But just because you're thinking about death or some sort of other catastrophe or existential things doesn't mean that your thoughts are somehow special and that they warrant this phobic, irrational, exaggerated response. They don't. In the end, they do not. Um, so... How are you going to deal with those things? You're going to get better at, re- at, at changing your reaction when you have those thoughts. Like, okay, I'm going to think about death. That's fine. It's okay to think about death. All human beings think about death from time to time. You may be stuck thinking about death right now because you think that you need to find safety from that thought. This thought represents a thing that I hate. It represents something that I'm afraid of something that I don't want to deal with. So I need to find a way to resolve that. I, if I think enough, if I think enough, if I think enough, I'll get away from it, and that's not true. So you're trying to find comfort, safety, soothing, reassurance, and certainty in the act of thinking. So you're responding to this thought that is full of uncertainty, nothing but uncertainty, nothing but uh, you know, disturb, the, the, the disturbance and uncertainty, nothing but that, and you're trying to counter it with more thinking. But in the end... You can learn that, well, when I have that thought, it's okay to let that thought come. I can choose to maybe ponder it a little right now. As you get down the road, you can make this choice. Or I can just choose to ignore that thought. I'm going to go back to reading the paper. I'm going to go back to the meeting that I'm in, the phone call. Whatever it is I'm doing, I'm going back to playing with the dog. And I'll think about that later. And you'll be able to do that. Like, you can do that. So the object of the game here, as always, so whether you're dealing with a memory, you know, a, a flashback, whether you're dealing about... Uh, you know, a thought about death, about some sort of perceived or imagined catastrophe, or you're pondering your place in the universe and existential issues. You have to stop and say, okay, I'm thinking. All I'm doing right now is I'm thinking or I'm remembering. And I can just relax. I can breathe. I can choose where to put my focus right now. I do not have to view these thoughts and these emotions as my mortal enemies. They They might not make me feel so great, and I might not enjoy them, but I am capable of handling them without fighting them, without sounding the alarm, without calling them disastrous. You won't have to do any of those things. So the first few times that you start to just let go and let that discomfort sit there with you, yeah, I don't have an answer to the death question. I don't. None of us ever do. We won't ever have that answer. Sorry, that's just the way life is. But when you confront that for the first few times, and for me, that was a huge obsession when I was at my worst. Death was a tremendous obsession for me. I I know I've talked about this before, but... It was at the point where I would not let, my, my kids were young at the time, I wouldn't let them use the words death, dying, dead. I didn't want to hear them. Couldn't even hear the words. And honestly, for me, it started with the realization when I had to start saying things like, well, today, I mean, one day I will die. Today is not that day. So do I want to spend it, like, worrying about it? And I know that sounds easier said than done, but I had to start with that statement and continually turn my back on the thoughts of death and death and death and, and non-existence and, and all of those things. I get all that. But you can learn to do that. And then the, the power of those thoughts when you disengage from them and just let the discomfort be there. I don't have to answer this. I'm not required to answer this thought. It's not going to help me in any way. In fact, it's hurting me to grab onto this thought and try and wrestle it to the ground and solve a problem that I will not ever be able to solve. When you let the discomfort just be there, all right, come along for the ride. I'm going to finish the, the project I'm working on right now while I am terrified to die. In the end, that's what this comes down to. I'm going to do what I need to do right now while I am remembering my panic attack, having some sort of flashback, thinking about some sort of catastrophe, being terrified to die, and wondering what existence really is. In any of those states, I can still continue to do what I want to do right now. And I can engage with that later if I choose to or not. So that is our response to those memories and those thoughts, the the response to memory, thinking, emotion, in the end, it all comes back to the same themes here. Learning to not be afraid of the act of thinking. Learning that you're, you're trying to seek safety, comfort, certainty where none will exist. Learning to be okay with uncertainty. Learning to be okay with discomfort. You can handle those things. You can navigate those things. These are the keys to success when you're dealing with memories, thoughts, flashbacks, uh, you know, catastrophic thoughts, sticky thoughts, existential anxiety. It's all the same thing in the end. You can handle all of that. You can handle being uncomfortable by you know questions that human beings have been struggling with since we've been able to think it's okay you can do it like people do it all the time and you can learn to react and and relate normally again to those thoughts over time it just is hard and it takes time it's exhausting it's hard work just like everything else in recovery but it is possible very very possible I live that I know from what I speak okay let's move on let's talk about a little parenting thing this was a good question a uh, person said, I won't do exposure because I'm afraid sometimes to embarrass my kids. So there are certain exposures that this person is avoiding and won't do because she's afraid to embarrass their her kids. So there's two things about this. The first one is that certainty thing. So uh, what if I embarrass my kids? Well, you have to get okay with that. You might act as too, but stick with me on this. If your kids wind up embarrassed, then your kids wind up embarrassed. So tell me what is worse. Is it worse for your kids to be embarrassed for 10 minutes or for them to watch you live a restricted life for the next 10 years? So in the end, we do not get to choose a path of recovery that is perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect path where nothing bad ever happens. Everything is gold-plated. It's always sunshine and rainbows. We cannot create, whether it's recovery from anxiety or life in general, we have no way to create that. Sunshine and rainbows all good all the time. It's not ever going to happen. So you have to come to grips with the idea that I've got this particular problem. I need to do these particular things to overcome this problem. And along the way, that might make me uncomfortable. I'm going to be intentionally afraid and uncomfortable. I'm going to, you know, face uncertainty. I'm going to face fear for me. And unfortunately, this is just reality. There's no, whether or not we want it, the situation that we find ourselves in when we are dealing with anxiety does impact the people in our lives. It already does. You can't say like, well, I need to find some way to do this without impacting the people around me too late. It's already impacting them. So how about we take a little bit of control of this and say, you know what? If I actually show my kids that I'm doing a hard thing, this is my homework. This is mommy's homework. This is daddy's homework. This is how I'm going to get better. Like you're seeing me struggle. This is how I am fixing it. That's not a bad lesson for them to see. And one day, They might be a little angry at you. They might actually wind up embarrassed for a few minutes. But you can deal with that. You can teach them that they can deal with that. So that's the first answer to that. Like, there's no way to do this where it's always going to be perfect. You cannot 100% like sugarcoat and gold plate your recovery. You cannot. The people in your life, including your kids, are already affected by it. So let them be affected in the most positive way. Ten minutes of embarrassment or watching you struggle for the next ten weeks, ten months, or ten years. Which do you think is the better choice? Because that is the reality of the choice that you face right now. Like it or not, that is your choice. So let's pick the most productive path. The second part of that, I'm afraid to embarrass my kids, so I'll avoid my exposure, is how the hell do you know that they're going to be embarrassed? You absolutely cannot know what your kids are thinking or feeling ever, or any human being. So I'm a parent, but I would be foolhardy for me to think that I can get inside the, the, the heads of my two daughters you know, I can kind of guess what they're feeling based on what they see or what they show me, what they say to me. They could tell me how they're feeling. But predicting how my actions are going to somehow make them feel, you know, we can try and act with compassion toward the people that we love. We don't want to do things that are intentionally going to make people uncomfortable or, or hurt their feelings or hurt them in any way. That's true. But... You know, this is sort of the selfish nature of the anxiety disorder that comes out. Not you're selfish. The, the disorder is selfish. It puts itself at the center of the universe. If I do this thing, then I'm going to ruin everybody's day. I'm going to embarrass my kids. I'm going to make them hate me. These people won't like me. Those are like irrational jumps, you know, conclusions to jump to that have no necessary basis in reality. How do you know what your kids are going to feel? They might not even notice. It's more likely that the kids are occupied and not even noticing what you have going on. That is much more likely than that they are somehow keyed in on you all the time and every move that you make anxiety-wise is going to have some impact on them. Like, that's not—that's a distortion driven by fear. So I think in the end you have to own that as well. You have absolutely no idea if your kids are going to wind up embarrassed or not, and I think odds are really good that they won't even necessarily care. And you're deciding because it makes you feel so horrible, then therefore it must make them feel horrible too, and that's not true. That has no bearing on reality also. Like what is catastrophic to you is probably inconsequential to them. Maybe an annoyance, maybe a little bit of embarrassment, but again, they can handle that and you can handle it with them. So that's my answer to that question. Be careful about deciding that your anxiety situation and your actions are somehow or other going to influence the entire universe. That's not an accurate way to to think of the world. And, Understand that, yeah, you may wind up embarrassing them at some point for a few minutes here and there, but it's a better choice than being stuck and having them see you stuck forever. And if there is some embarrassment or anger or upset or whatever it is, you guys can work it out together, and we learn lessons from that. So I would look at it that way. Don't avoid your exposures because of that, because of what might happen. You can handle all of what might happen, as can they. You can help them do that. Okay, next question is about depression. So this is I don't want to go too deep into this because this could be its own series of episodes by itself. But the question that was asked by several people is do we handle depression the same way that we handle anxiety? Is it a floating, accepting, refocusing, relaxing thing? The answer to that generally speaking is it depends. But but for the most part if if you're looking for a definitive answer, I'm going to say no. I'm going to err on the side of caution. When you start to become depressed and and please, you have to understand that being sad or being discouraged, or being disheartened is not equal to being depressed. Like, clinical depression is its own state, and you will know if you are in it. You will, trust me, you will know. Like, those of us who have lived that could tell you with certainty, you will know when you are heading down that road. Sadness is not depression. Disappointment is not depression. Frustration is not depression. You might feel a low mood. Those are not positive things to feel. We judge them as being negative emotions or negative states. But they don't necessarily mean depression. And in the end, when you are going down the road to depression, like true depression, clinical depression, that is a challenging thing. So we do not passively float through depression. We don't do that. That is not the way you handle depression. So just sitting there and and sitting in the depression is not the way we do that. So while anxiety and depression often come together, they can be linked sometimes. The way we deal with those things are are different. Anxiety is a going going toward thing you got to start to move look there's a reason why some of the most basic you know uh advice you're going to see about depression is get up move your body accomplish little things get out in the sun connect with people the best you can all of those things are things you might be faking you don't want to do but they begin to matter you challenge the depression in the end is what winds up happening so we actually do challenge the depression whereas we're not necessarily challenging we are facing our fears when it comes to the anxiety but we're not challenging them to prove them wrong, right? We're, we're basically accepting them to prove them wrong. Depression is different. Depression is you are literally going to challenge your depression to prove it wrong, if you will. This is a big topic, and I can't get too deep into it with one question, but no, if you're talking about actual depression, a depressed state, depressive state, clinical depression, then we do not float and accept passively with that. We do not. And if that's a place that you think you are, was, you know, you've lost interest in everything. You've lost your connection to the people in your life. You, you, you're struggling just to take care of yourself, eat, take a shower, brush your teeth. When you get to that point, when it looks like everybody has flushed the color out of the world, then you you should really be reaching out for some help, and, and you're going to have to challenge that. And it's always helpful to have somebody who's, who's treating depression working with you in that situation. But no, we do not passively just sit and accept our depression. We don't do that. Okay, Uh, sleep anxiety. I'm going to hit this quickly. We're going to do a couple episodes just on sleep. In a nutshell, here's the issue with sleep. People who say they have sleep anxiety, this all comes back to the same thing that you hear me say over and over and over. Sleep anxiety. If you do not sleep, you only get two hours of sleep. You only get three hours of sleep. I have seen people say, I only got six hours of sleep. Like, only. Meanwhile, the person that's getting an hour and a half or three hours would kill for six hours of sleep. Nonetheless, the issue with sleep is I'm afraid that I won't be able to sleep, which means that my anxiety is going to go through the roof. So it's the self-cycling, self-fueling cycle of fear. I'm afraid If I don't sleep enough, then my anxiety goes through the roof. No. If you don't sleep enough, you feel tired. You feel exhausted. You feel run down. You feel groggy. You feel disoriented. These are all the things that human bodies feel when they do not sleep. So you interpret that feeling of I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I'm groggy, I'm not so sharp today, I'm a little bit foggy, like if you're sleep deprived, that's going to happen. You have decided that that means that something is really wrong with you, You you're damaging your brain, you're damaging your heart, it means you're going to die, you're damaging your mental health, it makes you more susceptible to going crazy or somehow snapping or losing it or slipping away, all wrong, all irrational fear based distortions of the state. So We literally have a sleep deprivation epidemic in the Western world, at least in the United States. It's been going on for decades now. We don't sleep enough. We just don't. So for me, I remember sitting in a parking lot in a shopping center not too far from my house watching in the morning and watching people get out of their cars, and they were going into a little deli to get coffee or breakfast or whatever it was. And I watched these people going in and out. And I thought, you know what? Most of these people around me, they are exhausted. They are sleep-deprived. And I was at the moment, too. I mean, I'm a bad sleeper as it is, but I was a terrible sleeper during recovery. And the worst of my anxiety, it was it was I had terrible sleep problems. I was unable to sleep for more than an hour or two at a time. I would fall asleep at 1 o'clock in the morning and be up at, at 2 or 3, 4. You know, maybe fall asleep here and there when I could. It was difficult. But in the end, I had to realize, and this is what you have to realize, number one, the idea that somehow lack of sleep is going to damage you or make it so that you can't recover is not true. That's just not true at all. That's a distortion. And so this is fueling the anxiety over sleep. And when you don't sleep and you feel tired, groggy, you know, off balance, all of those things, not sleeping sucks. We don't feel good when we don't sleep. You're just afraid of not feeling good. But you don't have to be afraid of that. So you break the cycle by saying, okay, if I don't sleep, I don't sleep. That's fine. It means I'm going to be tired. I will sleep when I can. But I'm going to have to not fight the feeling tired." I'm not going to tense, I'm not going to brace, I'm not going to continually ask and seek reassurance. So the state of being tired because you haven't slept enough is almost exactly the state of being in a panic attack. The same response will apply. Like you're going to have all those those thoughts are going to pop up like oh I don't feel like I'm I'm really alive right now. I'm just so groggy. I'm disconnected from the world. Is this depersonalization? Is this what if this change what if this stays this way? What if there's something really wrong with me? What if I'm damaging my heart? Didn't I hear that I can damage my heart? Like, you're going to have to say, oh, I'm doing that thing again. I'm thinking again. I'm fighting again. I'm running again. I'm bracing again. You're going to have to understand that your body and your mind are capable of being sleep-deprived. It's possible. Everybody does it all the time. So that's sleep anxiety. You have to stop doing this thing where, like, well, now I have anxiety over sleep because if I don't sleep, my anxiety goes up. You see that circular thing? You'll never get out of that. You're going to have to own the idea that, oh, yeah, that's right. I feel like I I must sleep on demand because if I don't sleep, then I'm terrified of the feeling that I have when I'm tired. I'm terrified of the feeling that I have when I'm tired. It's the same thing as saying I'm terrified of what it feels like when I have a panic attack. Same exact thing. So it's not sleep. It's not even the lack of sleep. Sleep is nice. We do need sleep, and, and it'll come. But you're going to have to break that cycle by owning the fact that you are fighting that tired state you call you're calling it a disaster when it isn't. And you're going to have to learn to change your reaction to the tired state. Same thing, difficult, scary, uncomfortable, I get it. But that's how we fix that problem. And over time, sleep will come, it will come, your body is going to sleep, your body knows what to do. But declaring the lack of sleep a disaster, the wheels are falling off, the worst thing is going to happen if I don't sleep, you are making it more difficult. So in the end. You're actually going to progress better when you could just say, fine, I'm tired today. This is the way it's going to have to be. I'm still capable. Might be a little impaired because I'm a little bit groggy. I'm tired. You know, I can't keep my eyes open. Okay, that's normal. You're just a human being that hasn't slept. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're in mortal danger. It does not at all. So stop fighting it as if you are. Let it happen and things will change like everything else we talk about. That's sleep anxiety in a nutshell. So, just a couple of quick questions uh, uh, to wrap it up here, and I appreciate all of these. A few people ask questions about my own personal story, and I'll remind you that I've actually told this story uh, several times. Uh, there's a podcast episode called "Yes, My Anxiety Was as Bad as Yours." Uh, that Billy from Anxiety United kind of interviewed me. I did it on the Glowcast with my friend Kendra. Um, I'll try and link those in the show notes. Which, by the way, you can go to uh, the Anxious Truth slash one two two, and I'll try and link those things in the show notes for this episode. So I've told the story and my very first book, which is you know, like an hour and a half, two hour read. It's a tiny little book. It's like cheap as hell. You can, you can get it for free on Smashwords if you can download an ebook and read it. Um, it's called an Anxiety Story. If you go to theanxioustruth.com/slash/my-story, you can grab that book to give you an idea of what I actually lived and went through. But the questions were: uh, How did I know that when anxiety was impacting my life? How was how did I know that it was time that something was wrong? Honestly, when I when I was afraid to do things that I would normally not even think about doing. That's how I knew immediately when I started to worry about like, Oh, what if I have to drive home alone? And you know, there's traffic. When I started to think that I'd worry about that sort of stuff and be afraid of just day to day routine life tasks. That's how I knew that's, that was my avoidance kicking into high gear. And the fact that I was gluing the fear of how I felt and what I thought to everything. So that was the tip-off for me, for sure. I started to become afraid of doing just normal, everyday things. I "I never thought about this before. Why am I afraid of this? That's how I knew I had a problem. How did I know I was making progress? Honestly, some days you don't know you're making progress. There were days that I couldn't necessarily tell. I just had faith in the fact that I was. I did. Um, I got frustrated. I got angry. I got disappointed, just like everybody does. I had those days. Uh, And there were days when I couldn't see my progress, but I just had to have faith that it was there. But I knew that I was making progress when I would have moments where I would suddenly realize, oh, I'm doing a thing that I used to hate to do. Still not super comfortable, but I'm doing a thing. Uh, One of the things I can point to specifically was I remember a day that I was in my office, the old building where my old office was. And I don't remember what happened, but I had to go downstairs. The lower level of the building is where our data center was at the time. That's been closed for years now, but uh, that's where it was at the time. And this this was a tough spot for me. I did not want to be there alone. It was a stressful environment. If I was in the data center, it probably meant that something was broken and there were customers that needed help and that sort of stuff. And that was really difficult for me in those days. But I remember being down there and it somehow it it realized like, oh, geez, it's like six o'clock and everybody's gone already. And I'm here alone. Like I was the last person left that day, you know, for that shift. And and I realized like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm just doing a thing. I was just literally like 10, 10 or 15 minutes. I was just working on a thing like I used to do, like mindlessly just taking care of an issue or whatever the hell it was I was doing down there. Um, That that is how I knew I was making progress. You start to get glimpses of normalcy, which is back to the very first question I answered in this episode. Like you begin to have little moments. Another time was I remember I came home and I was laying on the floor and I was just petting the dog. I was literally just petting the dog. And I realized about 10 minutes into it that I was petting the dog. I was talking to my kids and I realized like this huge wave of joy came over because it was like, oh, my God, for the last 10 or 15 minutes, I have just been petting the dog and talking to the kids. That's all I've been doing. I had no interest in what I was thinking or how I was feeling. I was not thinking about anxiety. That's how I knew. And that will happen. But that comes with a lot of hard work. I was intentionally doing all of those things that terrified me all the time. And next thing I knew, I started to find moments where, like, ooh, I actually felt kind of normal. I'm doing a normal thing. So that's how I knew. And the last question to wrap it up because we're at 35 minutes was, how did I get off meds? That is a uh, – and I did. I did. I took an antidepressant. I was never a benzo person, but I did take an antidepressant for about nine years after my family doctor said, well, if you're a diabetic, you would take insulin. And he gave me that whole thing. And I took it for about nine years. How did I get off meds? Number one, too quickly. Um, again, I, I wrote about that in an anxiety story. It's a big, long story of what triggered my desire to stop the meds. It was. It's a thing that will stay with me forever. It had to do with my kids. But uh, how did I get off it? I went to the doctor right away and said, I'm done with this. And he said, I think that's a bad idea. I said, I don't care. I'm, I'm done with this now. Clearly, something is not right. Um, I knew something wasn't right because, you know, I – just my life was falling apart. I was not the same person that I was. So, you know, if you knew me before medication and you knew me after medication, seeing me while I was on that medication, you would think I was a completely different person. You would not recognize me physically, mentally, emotionally, from who the person you know on this microphone now. Unrecognizable. And so I remember going and saying, I'm done. i got to get off this medication. He said, it's a bad idea. I said, I don't fucking care. In plain English, I don't care what you think. I'm done with this now. If it means you put me in a box and you put me in a box, but I'm done with this. Okay, and he gave me, like, the whatever it was, two, four-week, like, standard, oh, here's what you do, in four weeks you'll be off of it. That was way too fast. I dealt with, I did deal with protracted withdrawal or discontinuation syndrome. That was extremely difficult. That was a tough year for me. But how I got off it was I did start to cut the dose. I just went way, way, way too fast. So my advice, if you want to get off your medication for whatever reason, for you, that you want to get off it, just go slow. You're not required to go 100 miles an hour to get off your meds. You're just not. There's no prize for going any faster. It will not improve your life any faster if you go quick. Just go slow. And if your doctor thinks that after 15 years of an antidepressant, you're supposed to get off them in two weeks, you can roll those dice if you want. Many people do that, and they're okay, but many people are not okay. So why not just go slow? There's no prize. There's no additional benefit to racing off the medication. So I want you to forget the idea of I need to be and back to natural. Natural will come when it comes. Be patient. Let your body do what it's supposed to do. Give it the best chance to do it the best way it can do it. And rushing is not giving it the best chance. right? So forget the idea of I want it out of my system. That's not accurate in terms of how the medication works. Like, yes, forget the half-life of the medication. I know you're going to hear about all those things. What oh, has a long half-life, it has a short half? Yeah, they do. That's true. That's a, that's a metabolite kind of thing. I get that. Those are true things. Well, after two weeks, it'll be completely out of my system. Forget about detox. Forget about all of that stuff. The issue here when you come off your medication is readaptation at the, the reuptake sites, those neurotransmitters, those receptor cell sites. At least we think. That seems to be the best theory right now your your receptors downregulate have to upregulate again and that just takes time that just takes time there's nothing you're going to do to swallow drink sniff rub nothing it's just your body is going to have to find its level and just give it the chance to do it at a reasonable pace as best you can so that's my best advice how i came off meds too fast honestly too fast i didn't have to do it that fast and i suffered as a result so um I did taper. I just tapered too quickly. I would advise you not to do that. My experience was that I made it worse on myself than I had to, and I just had to go through it. That's all. uh, There was no no other answer I can give you. I just had to go through what I had to go through. Uh, At one point, the doctor did say, I want you to go back on the medication. I said, absolutely not. He said, you have to find a new doctor then. I said, okay, goodbye, and (laughs) he didn't let me go. I mean, that guy, he's still my doctor now. We have a great relationship. I love that guy. But uh, I remember him saying, well, you have to find a new doctor then because you need to be back on the meds. I said, oh, bye, I'll go to another doctor then. Or no doctor, but I ain't doing it again. And he stuck with me. He did. Anyway, that's the deal with that. All right, guys, that is enough. 40 minutes is enough. I appreciate all your questions. I hope that it has been helpful to you guys, that it, the questions have resonated with you. We'll do this again every couple of months for sure. Um, I'm actually enjoying doing it. I thought, nah, I don't want to do this. But now that I did it, I'm happy that I did. i like to be able to interact with you guys. So that is the episode, theanxioustruth.com slash 122 if you want the full show notes for this one. Don't forget to check out the book at theanxioustruth.com slash recovery guide. And as always, as I leave you with Afterglow by my friend Ben Drake, facebook.com slash Ben Drake Music, if you're listening on iTunes or anywhere that you can rate and review the podcast, maybe take a few minutes to do that. Just leave a a, a five-star rating, a four-star rating. I guess one star if you hate it, but I don't know why you'd be listening if you only, like, hate it. But uh, leave a rating and write a little review. If you are being helped by the podcast, a good review and a rating helps other people find the podcast, too. And honestly, that would be a huge favor to me because this is why I do this. I do it to help. And the more people, I guess, we can reach, then the better off we're going to be. So, yeah, do it, please. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Thanks for stopping by and spending time, as always. Enjoy. Enjoy the music? I'll see you next week. This is where your story begins. You got the feeling that you're gonna win. Yeah, you're doing fine. Now in the city and you're living fast. No looking back or dwelling on the past. You know you'll never get another chance.